Section 56 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 16, The Classical Renaissance by Sir Richard C. Jebb, Part 4. The prevalent tendency of humanism at this period was towards accuracy and elegance of Latin style. That wide range of study, which had been characteristic of Politian and of the greatest humanists before him, was no longer in vogue. Attention was now concentrated on a few models of composition, especially on Cicero and Virgil. Bembo, strictest of Ciceronians, a literary dictator in the age of Leo X, warned the learned Sedoletto against allowing his style to be depraved by the diction of St. Paul's epistles, omite has nugas, advice which did not, however, ultimately deter Sedoletto from publishing a commentary on the epistle to the Romans. Another trait of the time, justly ridiculed by Erasmus, was the fashion of using pagan paraphrases for Christian ideas, or for things wholly modern. Thus, the saints are divi. The papal tiara is infula romulea. Not merely good taste, but reverence, was often sacrificed to this affectation. With regard to pagan themes, Bembo is a proof that they could now be treated in Latin verse, and by an ecclesiastic with a frank paganism which no ancient could have outdone. The central figure in this period is Pope Leo X, 1513-21. He had an inborn zeal for the classical Renaissance. At Rome, under his reign, the cult of the antique engaged a circle much larger, though far less rich in genius, than the group which had surrounded his father, Lorenzo de' Medici, at Florence. The position of humanism at the Vatican was now very different from what it had been in the preceding century. So far as the earlier humanists came into relations with the papal curia, it was chiefly because they were required as writers of Latin. Poggio, Leonardo Bruni, and Lorenzo Valla were employed as apostolic secretaries. Valla's appointment marked, indeed, as we have seen, a new policy of the Vatican towards humanism. But all three remained laymen, and that was the general rule. In those days, humanists seldom rose to high ecclesiastical office. It was otherwise now. Distinction in scholarship had become one of the surest avenues to preferment in the Church. A youth gained some literary distinction, was brought to Rome by his patron, and attracted the notice of the Pope. Thus, Bembo, Sadoletto, and Aleander attained to the sacred purple. Paulus Jovius, Vida, and Marcus Musurus became bishops. Such cases were frequent. Scholars were now in the high places of the Vatican. They gave the tone to the court and to Roman society. It was a world pervaded by a sense of beauty in literature, in plastic art, in architecture, in painting, a world in which graceful accomplishments and courtly manners lent a charm to daily life, 
a scholar or artist, coming to Rome in Leo's reign, would have found there all or more than all that had fascinated Erasmus a few years before. To Leo and his contemporaries, it might well have seemed that their age was the very flower and crown of the Renaissance. The aesthetic pleasures of their existence had been prepared by the labors of predecessors who had brought back the ancient culture. But the humanism of Leo's age had no longer within it the seeds of further growth. The classical revival in Italy had now well-nigh run its course. Its best and freshest forces were spent. It was rather in the literature of the Italian language that the original power of the Italian genius was now seeking expression. Leo X should not, however, be identified merely with that phase of humanism, brilliant indeed, yet already decadent, which was mirrored in his court. He was also, beyond doubt, a man animated by a strong and genuine desire to promote intellectual culture, not only in the form of elegant accomplishment, but also in that of solid learning. Of this he gave several proofs. The Roman university, the Sapienza, had hitherto been inferior, as a school of humanism, to some others in Italy. It had never rivaled Florence, and it could not now compete with Ferrara. Leo, in the first year of his pontificate, 1513, made a serious effort to improve it, and it was not his fault if that effort had little permanent success. He remodeled the statutes of the university, created some new chairs, enlarged the emoluments of those which existed, and induced some scholars of eminence to join the staff. Another way in which he showed his earnest sympathy with learning was by his encouragement of Greek studies. More than forty years before this, editions of Latin classics had begun to issue from the Roman press. But Rome had hitherto lagged behind in the printing of Greek. The first Greek book printed at Rome was a Pindar, published in 1515 by Zacharias Caliergi, a Cretan who had helped to bring out the Etymologicum Magnum at Venice in 1499. A Greek printing press was now established in Rome by Leo. He also instituted the Gymnasium Cabalini Montis, where lectures were given by Aldo's former assistant, the eminent Cretan scholar Marcus Musurus, and also by the veteran John Lascaris. This was perhaps the last considerable effort made in Italy to arrest the incipient decline of Greek studies. A permanent interest attaches to the profession of faith in humanism left on record by Leo X. When, in 1515, the first six books of the Annals of Tacitus appeared in the Editio Princeps of Filippo Beroaldo the Younger, the Pope conferred upon the editor a privilege for the sale and reprinting of the book. In the brief which granted this privilege, and which was prefixed to the edition, Leo expressed his estimate of the new learning. We have been accustomed, he says, even from our early years, to think that nothing more excellent or more useful has been given by the Creator to mankind 
If we accept only the knowledge and true worship of himself, then these studies, which not only lead to the ornament and guidance of human life, but are applicable and useful to every particular situation, in adversity, consolatory, in prosperity, pleasing and honorable, insomuch that without them we should be deprived of all the grace of life and all the polish of social intercourse. He then observes that, quote, the security and extension of these studies, end quote, seem to depend chiefly on two things, quote, the number of men of learning and the ample supply of excellent authors, end quote. As to the first, it has always been his earnest desire to encourage men of letters, and as to the acquisition of books, he rejoices when an opportunity is thus afforded him of thus, quote, promoting the advantage of mankind, end quote. The best spirit of Italian humanism finds a noble expression in these words, written by one who, both as Giovanni de' Medici and as Leo X, had proved the sincerity of his devotion to the interests of letters. That sympathy was interwoven with his personal character and temperament. It scarcely needed to be strengthened by the great traditions of his house, we may doubt whether he was conscious that the classical renaissance had so decidedly passed its zenith. Certainly he can have had no presage of what was to happen a few years after his death. The capture of Rome by the imperialist troops in 1527 broke up that Roman world of literature and art, which, as viewed by the men who were under its spell, had rivaled the age of Pericles or of Augustus, Valeriano, who knew the city both before and after that fatal year, has described in his dialogue De Literatorum Infelicitate the horror and completeness of the catastrophe. When he asked for the men of letters whom he remembered at Rome, he learned that many of them had perished by the sword, by torture, or by disease. Others had escaped only to end their days in penury and suffering. But some fine scholars were still left in Italy. Petrus Victorius, 1499-1584, who taught at his native Florence from 1538 onwards, showed much acuteness in his Varie Lectiones. His labors included some good work for the Attic tragedians Aristotle and Cicero. Lombardy was now the part of Italy in which classical culture found its chief refuge. At Ferrara, humanism was represented especially by Lilius Giraldus, 1479-1552, whose Historia Poetarum, 1545, was one of the earliest books on the history of classical literature. Robortelos, 1516-67, a sound Hellenist, who taught at Pavia and elsewhere, edited Aeschylus and Callimachus, while by his treatise De Arte Siverationale Corrigenti Antiquos Libros, he ranks among the founders of textual criticism. Ever since the days of Politian, the cultivation of Latin verse writing had been popular. Along with much that was mediocre or bad, some admirable work in this kind was produced. 
Andrea Navallero of Venice, who died in 1529, might be instanced as a Latin scholar who wrote verse in a really classical taste, untainted by the coarseness which was then too common. A few years after the sack of Rome, Marcantonio Flaminio of Imola, dedicated to his patron Alessandro Farnese, a collection of verses by scholars belonging to Venice, Modena, Verona, Mantua, and other North Italian towns. The condition of Italy at this time was utterly miserable, but Flaminio's elegant verse breathes only a scholar's exultation. Quote, happy, too happy are our days which have given birth to a Catullus, a Tibullus, a Horace, and a Virgil of their own. Who would have thought that after the darkness of so many centuries and the dire disasters of Italy, so many lights could have arisen within the narrow region beyond the Po? End quote. Such words written in such days have an unconscious pathos. They are significant of Italy's patient fidelity to the ideals of the Renaissance, as well as of the price which she paid for it. And now, at last, the tide was about to turn. The power of the Roman Church, strenuously engaged in combating the Reformation, became adverse also to the aims and the spirit of the new learning. In 1530, Clement VII and Charles V made their compact at Bologna. Spain, supported by the papacy, effected the pacification of Italy. So far as Italy was concerned, the humanistic movement was now arrested, and a reaction had begun. Writing about 1540, Paulus Jovius lamented that scholarship had migrated from Italy to Germany. His complaint was somewhat premature, but such a process had indeed set in. The most learned Italian of the next generation, Cardinal Baronius, 1538-1607, the author of Annales Ecclesiastici, was unacquainted with Greek. The work accomplished by the Italian Renaissance claims the lasting gratitude of mankind. In the interval between the time of Petrarch and that of Leo X, a space of about a 170 years, ardent and unceasing labors bridged the gulf between the medieval and the modern world. Latin, the universal language, was purged from barbarism. Latin literature was brought back into the full light of intelligent study. Greek was restored to the West. After centuries of intellectual poverty, men entered once more into possession of the poetry and the eloquence, the wisdom and the wit bequeathed by ancient Greece and Rome. The period of this revival was one in which the general tone of morality was low, and cynicism, bred partly of abuses in the church, had well-nigh paralyzed the restraining power of religion. Some of the humanists were pagans, not as Seneca was, but as Petronius Arbiter, and, far from suffering in public esteem, enjoyed the applause of princes and prelates. Not a little that was odious or shameful occasionally marked their conduct and disfigured their writings, 
but it is hardly needful to observe that such exponents of humanism were in no way representative of its essence or even of its inevitable conditions in a corrupt age among the foremost italian scholars were many exemplars of worthy life and noble character men whose enthusiasm for letters was joined to moral qualities which compel respect and admiration and no transient phase of fashionable paganism could mar the distinctive merits of the italian renaissance or affect its permanent results italian humanism restored good standards of style in prose and verse thereby benefiting not classical studies alone but modern literature as well it did much for erudition and prepared the ground for more it founded literary education of a liberal type it had a wide outlook and taught men to regard classical antiquity as a whole a fruitful stage in the history of human development lastly it achieved a result even larger than its work for scholarship by diffusing a new spirit the foe of obscurantism the ally of all forces that make for light for the advancement of knowledge and for reasonable freedom long before the renaissance had run its course in italy its influences had begun to pass the alps but there is one man who above all others must be regarded as the herald of humanism in the north it is the distinction of erasmus that by the peculiar qualities of his genius and by the unique popularity of his writings he prepared the advent of the new learning not in his native holland alone but throughout europe before indicating the special directions which the renaissance took in particular countries it is fitting to speak of him whose work affected them all born at rotterdam in fourteen sixty seven erasmus was approaching manhood when italian humanism having culminated in the days of politian was about to decline his own training was not directly due to italy when he was a schoolboy at deventer his precocious ability was recognized by rudolf agricola whom he has designated as quote, the first who brought from italy some breath of a better culture end quote. erasmus avers that in his boyhood northern europe was barbarously ignorant of humane literature a knowledge of greek was quote, the next thing to heresy i did my best he says to deliver the rising generation from this slough of ignorance and to inspire them with a taste for better studies he made himself a good scholar by dint of hard private work suffering privations which left him a chronic invalid in fourteen ninety eight he visited oxford meeting there some of the earliest english humanists from fifteen hundred to fifteen o five he was in paris working hard at greek he spent the years fifteen o six to nine in italy from the close of fifteen ten to that of fifteen thirteen he was at cambridge where he lectured on greek and also held the lady margaret professorship of divinity there in fifteen twelve he completed his collation of the greek text of the new testament in fifteen sixteen his edition of it the first ever published was brought out by froben at basel 
He left England in 1514 to return only for a few months somewhat later. His life after 1514 was passed chiefly at Basel, where he died in 1536. Those 22 years were full of marvelous literary activity. The attitude of Erasmus towards humanism had a general affinity with that of Petrarch and the other leaders of the Italian revival. Like them, he hailed a new conception of knowledge, an enlargement of the boundaries within which the intellect and imagination could move. Like them, he welcomed the recovered literatures of Greece and Rome as inestimable organs of that mental and spiritual enfranchisement. But there was also a difference. To Petrarch, as to the typical Italian humanist generally, the new learning was, above all things, an instrument for the self-culture of the individual. To Erasmus, on the other hand, self-culture was in itself, greatly though he valued it, a secondary object, subservient to a greater end. He regarded humanism as the most effectual weapon for combating that widespread ignorance which he considered to be the root of many evils that were around him. He saw the abuses in the church, the scandals among the clergy, the illiteracy prevalent in some of the monastic orders, kings wrought untold misery for selfish aims. Quote, when princes purpose to exhaust a commonwealth, he said, they speak of a just war. When they unite for that object, they call it peace. End quote. The pedantries of the schoolmen, though decaying, were still obstacles to intellectual progress. The moral standards in public and private life were deplorably low. Erasmus held that the first step towards mitigating such evils was to disseminate as widely as possible the civilizing influence of knowledge. And in humanism, he found the knowledge best suited for the purpose— he overrated the rapidity with which such an influence could permeate the world, but he was constant to his object and did much towards attaining it. Thus, in all his work, his aim was essentially educational. He was an ardent and indefatigable student, but through all his labors there ran the purpose of a practical moralist who hoped to leave human society better than he had found it. No aspect of the Renaissance interested him which he did not think conducive to that end. He cared nothing for its metaphysics, archaeology, or art. All his own writings illustrate his ruling motive. The adagia are maxims or proverbial sayings culled from the classics which he often applies to the affairs of his own day. The colloquia are lively dialogues partly meant to serve as models of Latin writing, which convey in a dramatic guise his views on contemporary questions. The apothems are pointed sayings from various authors, largely from Plutarch. An educational and ethical aim also guided his choice of books to be edited. His best edition of a classic was that of his favorite poet, Terence. Next in merit, perhaps, stood his edition of Seneca. 
an equal importance can scarcely be claimed for his editions of greek classics belonging chiefly to the last five years of his life though they did the service of making the authors more accessible and of supplying improved texts he also promoted a wider knowledge of greek poetry and prose by several latin translations but that purpose which gave unity to his life work received its highest embodiment in his contributions to biblical criticism and exegesis the scholastic theology had been wont to use isolated texts detached from their context and artificially interpreted the object of erasmus was to let all men know what the bible really said and meant we have seen that his edition of the greek testament was the earliest he also made a latin version of the new testament aiming at an accuracy greater than that of the vulgate he wrote latin paraphrases of the books of the new testament except revelation with the object of exhibiting the thought in a more modern form lastly he recalled attention from the medieval expositors of christian doctrine to the fathers of the early church he edited jerome and some other latin fathers he also made latin translations from some of the greek fathers especially from chrysostom and athanasius and so helped to make their writings better known in the west he wished to see the scriptures translated into every language and given to all i long he said that the husbandman should sing them to himself as he follows the plough that the weaver should hum them to the tune of his shuttle that the traveller should beguile with them the weariness of his journey the more popular writings of erasmus had a circulation throughout europe which even now would be considered enormous when it was rumoured that the sorbonne intended to brand his colloquia as heretical a paris bookseller deemed it well to hurry through the press an edition of twenty-four thousand copies we hear that in fifteen twenty seven a spanish version of his encairidion a manual of christian ethics could be found in many country inns throughout spain it would probably be difficult to name an author whose writings were so often reprinted in his lifetime as were those of erasmus he was not indeed a scaliger a casobon or a bentley he did not contribute in the same sense or in a similar degree to the progress of scientific scholarship but no one else so effectively propagated the influence of humanism of all scholars who have popularized scholarly literature erasmus was the most brilliant the man whose aims were loftiest and who produced lasting effects over the widest area his work was done too at the right moment for the north a genial power was needed to thaw the frost-bound soil and to prepare those fruits which each land was to bring forth in its own way the energies of the italian renaissance had been concentrated on the literature and art of ancient greece and rome the italian mind had a native and intimate sympathy with classical antiquity for italy the whole movement of the renaissance is virtually identical with the restoration of classical learning it is otherwise when we follow that movement into northern europe 
Humanism is still, indeed, the principal organ through which the new spirit works, but the operations of the spirit itself become larger and more varied. The history of the classical revival passes on one side into that of the Reformation, on another into provinces which belong to modern literature. It might be said that the close of the Italian Renaissance is also, in strictness, the close of the process by which a knowledge of classical antiquity was restored. What remained was to diffuse the results throughout Europe and to give them a riper development. But it is desirable to indicate, at least in outline, the general conditions under which humanism first entered the countries of the North. We may begin with Germany. In the course of the 15th century, some German students had resorted to teachers of the new learning at various Italian centers. Among the earliest of these was Johann Müller, 1436-76, born at Königsberg, near Coburg, and hence known as Regio Montanus. He was the first who made humanism the handmaid of science. After working at Vienna under the astronomer Perbach, he went with Cardinal Bessarion to Italy, where he spent several years in studying Greek, 1462-70. to 70. He translated into Latin the works of Ptolemy, the conics of Apollonius of Perga, and other scientific treatises. Settling at Nuremberg in 1471, he founded an observatory and made several improvements in practical astronomy. His ephemerides, the precursors of nautical almanacs, helped the Spanish and Portuguese explorers to navigate untraveled seas. Another of the German pioneers was Rolf Heismann, known in literary history as Rudolf Agricola, 1443-85. Going to Ferrara in 1476, he attended the Greek lectures of Theodoros Gaza. Through the good offices of Johann von Dahlberg, the scholarly bishop of Worms, he was appointed to a professorship at Heidelberg. There, as also at Worms, he lectured on the Greek and Roman literature. He was an opponent of the scholastic philosophy as it existed in his day, and his best-known work, De Inventione Dialectica, was a plea for its reform. But his special claim to remembrance is that he was the first who systematically sought to make classical study an effective force in German education. He, and such as he, when they returned to Germany from their studies in Italy, found themselves in an atmosphere wholly different from that which surrounded the early Italian humanists. Erasmus has described the intellectual torpor which prevailed in Germany during his own boyhood and youth. The teaching of Latin was dull and meager. Greek was scarcely taught at all. The masters were content with a few old handbooks and wedded to outworn methods. Scholastic theologians and illiterate monks were equally hostile to the new humanism. It had, however, some powerful protectors, including the Roman king Maximilian, Joachim, the elector of Brandenburg, Albert, 
Archbishop of Mainz, and, not least, Frederick, Elector of Saxony. Of the seventeen universities, some, such as Vienna, Heidelberg, and Erfurt, admitted the new learning, though in some others, such as Cologne, it was opposed. There were also groups of learned students at several centers, such as Basel, Strasbourg, Augsburg, and Nuremberg, and there were some rising societies or academies devoted to humane letters. But there was as yet no general or widely diffused interest in the new learning, while on the other hand there were powerful influences directly and strongly opposed to it. The first event which roused the public mind to a more active sympathy is connected with an illustrious name. Johann Reuchlin, 1455-1522, studied Greek at Paris and also at Basel. He afterwards went to Italy. At Rome, in 1482, he heard Argyropoulos' lecture on Thucydides and was noticed by him as a student of great promise. He published some Latin versions from Greek authors and some elementary Greek manuals which were used in German schools. But after 1492, his chief interest was in Hebrew, mainly as the key of the Old Testament, but also on account of the Kabbalah, that medieval system of Jewish theosophy, which he regarded as helpful towards reconciling ancient philosophy with Christian doctrine. The same notion had been cherished by Pico della Mirandola, 1463-94, who, like Reuchlin, had approached the Kabbalah through Neoplatonism. Reuchlin's views on the subject were set forth in his treatises De Verbo Mirifico, 1494, and De Arte Kabbalistica, 1517. Thus, alike on theological and on philosophical grounds, Reuchlin was an enthusiast for Hebrew scholarship. He furnished it with several aids, including the grammar and lexicon, Rudimenta Hebraica, which he brought out in 1506. And it was as a defender of Hebrew letters that he became engaged in a struggle which went far to decide the immediate future of the new learning in Germany. In 1509, Johann Pfefferkorn, a converted Jew, sought from the Emperor Maximilian a mandate for the suppression of all Hebrew books except copies of the Bible. Reuchlin was consulted and opposed the measure. He was then attacked by Pfefferkorn as a traitor to the church. In 1514, he was accused by the Dominicans of Cologne, whose dean was the Inquisitor Hochstraten in the ecclesiastical court at Mainz. The Bishop of Spire, acting for the Pope, acquitted him, and the decision was confirmed at Rome in 1516. This was an impressive victory for Reuchlin. Afterwards, on an appeal of the Dominicans, Rome reversed the previous judgment and condemned him, 1520, but that sentence passed unnoticed and has come to light only in our own time. Meanwhile, the German humanists had taken up Reuchlin's cause, which, as they saw, was their own. If Jews should be forbidden to read such an author as Maimonides, who was useful to St. Thomas Aquinas, how could Christians be allowed to read Homer, who depicts the immoralities of Olympus? 
Never was intolerance a fairer mark for the shafts of ridicule. The first volume of the Epistolae Obscurorum Virorum, written chiefly by Crotus Rubanus, appeared in 1514, the second chiefly by Ulrich von Hutten in 1517. The writers wield with trenchant if somewhat brutal force a weapon which had been used with greater subtlety by Plato and to which a keener edge was afterwards given by Pascal. They put the satire into the mouths of the satirized. Bigots and obscurantists bear witness in dog Latin to their own ineptitude. Reuschland's triumph in 1516 had an immediate and momentous effect on German opinion. A decided impetus was given to Hebrew and to Greek studies, especially in their bearing on biblical criticism and on theology. This was the direction characteristic of the earlier humanism in Germany. Almost all the more eminent scholars were occupied, at least occasionally, with theological discussions. In 1525, three years after Reuschland's death, Erasmus wrote a letter to Alberto Pio, Prince of Carpi, the pupil and benefactor of Aldo, in which he observes that the adversaries of the new learning had been anxious to identify it with the Lutheran cause. They hoped, he says, thus to damage two enemies at once. In Germany, during the earlier half of the 16th century, the alliance between humanism and the Reformation was real and intimate. The paramount task which the new learning found in Germany was the elucidation of the Bible. But the study of the classical literatures also made steady progress and was soon firmly established in German education. Foremost among those who contributed to that result was Melanchthon, 1497-1560, though his services to humanism in earlier life are now less prominently associated with his memory than the part which he afterwards bore in the theological controversies of his age. It was from Reuschlin that the precocious boy, Philip Schwarzerd, received the Greek name, a version of his patronymic under which he was to become famous. After taking his doctor's degree, at Tübingen in 1514, Melanchthon won notice by expositions of Virgil and Terence, which led Erasmus to hail him as a rising star of learning. He was only 21 when, in 1518, the elector of Saxony, moved by Reuschlin, appointed him to the chair of Greek in the University of Wittenberg. It was characteristic of the man and of the period that he began with two concurrent sets of lectures, one upon the epistle to Titus and the other upon Homer, observing in reference to the latter that, like Solomon, he sought, quote, Tyrian brass and gems for the adornment of God's temple. Luther, his senior by fourteen years, derived from him a new impulse to the study of Greek, Melanchthon did very important work towards establishing or improving humanistic education in the schools of Germany. In his Discourse on Reforming the Studies of Youth, a work imbued with the genuine spirit of the Renaissance, he advocated a liberal discipline of classical literature as the soundest basis of school training, 
in opposition to the methods of instruction favored by the older scholastic system. Many of the aids to classical study which Melanchthon produced, chiefly at Wittenberg, were popular schoolbooks in their day. Among these were his Institutiones Linguae Greque, 1518, his Grammatica Latina, 1525, Latin versions from Greek classics, and comments on various Greek and Latin authors. After Melanchthon may justly be named his friend and biographer Camerarius, Joachim Kammermeister, 1500-74, a prolific contributor to scholarly literature, whose edition of Plautus, 1552, was the first that placed the text on a sound basis. Thus, in the course of the 16th century, the new studies gradually conquered a secure position in Germany. Broad and solid foundations were laid for the classical learning which Germans of a later age were to build up. But while there was this progress in humane letters, the Teutonic movement showed nothing analogous to the Italian feeling for the aesthetic charm of ancient culture and existence. The German mind, earnest and intellectually practical, had not the Italian's delight in beauty of literary style and form, still less his instinctive sympathy with the pagan spirit. Germany drew fresh mental vigor and freedom from the classical revival without adopting the Italian ideal of self-culture or admitting a refined paganism into social life. The Teutonic genius, which had molded so much of all that was distinctively medieval, remained sturdily itself. A like contrast is seen in the province of art. Michelangelo and Raphael are intimately affected by classical influences. Dürer and Holbein, men of the same period, also show a new mastery but remain Gothic. Thus, the first period of humanism in Germany presents a strongly marked character of its own, wholly different from the Italian. So far as concerns the main current of intellectual and literary interests, the German Renaissance is the Reformation. End of section 56. Recording by Linda Johnson.